Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your kindness to us. We pray as we hear from your word and as we learn to lament with uh, the way your word would instruct us to, that we would do it in a way that would praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn to Psalm 12. We'll be in Psalm 12 this morning. I don't know if you've ever read The Emperor's New Clothes. Um, Perhaps many of you have. We were reading it the other night um, as a family. And in The Emperor's New Clothes, just in case you haven't read it or perhaps you need a reminder, some fraudulent swindlers come into this kingdom, right? And the king loves nice clothes in this kingdom. He's got, that's his weakness. He loves nice clothes. Um, Who doesn't like to be well-dressed, right? But he really likes to be well-dressed. And so these fraudulent guys come into town claiming that they have some of the most, they can weave the most exquisite fabric. It is the most beautiful, most amazing fabric ever. And that they are very good at then turning said fabric into amazing clothing fit for the emperor. And so the emperor says, that sounds great. Count me in. He invests a large sum of money. And then they say, well, one more thing we should also tell you is that this has a second benefit in that this clothing can identify people who are foolish or incompetent at their job because they will not be able to see this fabric. If you're foolish or incompetent, you actually can't see the fabric. Only those who are wise and smart and knowledgeable can see this fabric. And so this would be a way to identify fools in the kingdom. Well, maybe the king might be rethinking his agreement, but at the same time, I mean, he's pretty wise in his own eyes, right? So he can handle it well. So he says, go ahead. They, they continue with the work. Uh, I think he has a little bit of a second thought in the story. I don't know if it explicitly says that, but he, so he ends up sending his prime minister to go take a look at their work. Now, you know, perhaps he's thinking, well, what happens if I can't see it? Or, you know, let's see what's going on. His prime minister goes, takes a look at it, and, uh, and they're over here weaving away on the loom, and, and they're going on and on about how beautiful and how amazing this material is. Like, can't you see? Don't you, don't you appreciate this? And, you know, they're pointing out the pattern and all these things. Well, the prime minister can see nothing. He sees nothing. And, uh, and so he thinks, well, I can't have the king think I'm incompetent. I'm a fool, right? So, he's, so what does he do, Right? He doesn't tell the truth. He listens real carefully to what they're telling him and takes some notes about what it looks like and then goes back to the king and says, hey, it's wonderful. This is what it looks like. Later on, the king shows up ready to receive his clothing and um, can't really see anything, right? But I mean, he's certainly not going to admit that he can't see it, right? Because he's he's the emperor. And so he listens to what they're saying and affirms that it must obviously be beautiful. He agrees with all that. And, um, So he ends up putting it on and is paraded through the streets, right? Which was the plan all along because why have nice clothes unless you have a party to go to? So he's got nice clothes. He's going to parade through the streets as he would normally do to receive the praise of his people so they might see how wonderfully he's dressed in his invisible clothes. So the king is walking around. He's surrounded by people who are essentially liars and embraces the lie himself and is paraded through the streets um, in a relatively uh, embarrassing way. So, what do we do when we live in a culture or a society marked by lies? Do we uh, live in fear? I mean, mobs are powerful, right? The madness of the crowd is a real thing. And, uh, and so, do we, do we live in fear? Do we get bitter? Um, like, hey, look, you have made life hard through your lies, and now I'm bitter about it. And I'll show you, we'll fight fire with fire. Do I, do I get bitter about it? Or do I just shrug my shoulders and say, well, you know, why cry over spilled milk, right? I mean, you know, it is what it is. Nothing we can do. We'll just move on. Nothing to see here. 
And I, I don't think any of those are the biblical model for how she re- we should respond. In Psalm 12, we get a biblical model for it. This psalm is really about living in a culture of lies. And, and so we want to learn from the scripture, how do we show sorrow in a God-honoring way? Because the Psalms teach us how to show joy and sorrow in God-honoring ways. So before I go into, real briefly, we're going to read the Psalm. I'm going to tell you where we're going with it. But before I do that, let me just say a few things about a, a Psalm of sorrow. Or uh, you may have heard it as a Psalm of lament. Let's talk just briefly about that. Um, why do we need Psalms of sorrow and Psalms of lament? Well, the answer is God's given us, this is going to seem simple, but he's given us Psalms of lament because we need them. We need Psalms of sorrow and lament. I mean, life is easy, right? Right? No. Um, Not in this fallen world, it's not. So we need them. Why? Because life is hard. And there are lots of things to lament in this fallen world, to be sorrowful over. And uh, sin has infected us, and all creation now has the tumors all over it that bear witness to sin. This is a sin-sick and cursed world because of, of that. So we need psalms of lament because this is where we live. And we need psalms of lament because it's not just that we live in this sin-sick, cursed world, but we are to be God's faithful people in the middle of it. God is still really on his throne in the middle of it. So we we can't just lament, or not lament, we can't just be uh, sorrowful the way the world is. God's people have to learn how to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Perplexed, but not destroyed or crushed. And so the Psalms give us a pattern, especially in the Psalms of Lament, of how this should look. Uh, The the Psalms of Lament tell us there's more than meets the eye, right? I mean, the world can lament things. They could write their own Psalms of Lament, but they miss the unseen reality that God is reigning on his throne and he is good. And he will bring judgment. He will bring salvation for his people and judgment on his enemies. Both those things have to happen. Sometimes we don't like to talk about the judgment part, but if salvation's going to come, judgment has to come. It's, it's kind of like we want, you know, there's someone holding a gun to our head and we want something done about it. But, you know, well, judgment's got to come. Something's got to happen. It's not just that I get saved out of that. Something has to happen to the, the violence that's about to happen as well. That has to be judged. And so we have both those things happening in the Psalms. So with that in mind, um, we, we want to look at Psalm 12. So let me read Psalm 12 for us. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So it's a little different than the Pew Bible, but pretty close. And uh, then I'll, I'll tell you the outline and we will jump in to where we're going. So this is uh, to the choir master. It's a psalm of David. Um, we don't really know what this, uh, the Sheminth means. It sounds like it's something to do with the eighth. Uh, there's various speculation on that. But let's read the actual text here of the rest of the psalm. It says in verse one, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Now, this psalm is connected to the preceding psalms, um, 
The preceding psalms are also psalms of lament. In chapter 10, we see the sorrow of the wicked oppressing the vulnerable and the weak in society. So, that, so there's this, this oppression going on in that psalm, and, and that's what the lament is about. In Psalm 11, we have the sorrow of a crumbling society, uh, specifically when things like justice and righteousness are being trampled on. And it seems like all the things that would, would promote a stable society are crumbling because of wickedness. Here we see how this oppression in Psalm 10, we see how the collapsing of society in Psalm 11 all manifest themselves in a society that is full of lies, a culture of lies. So these are not unconnected, right? I mean, oppression often happens how? Through lies, right? It it, it finds strength in that at least, right? Even if the actual acts of oppression are more than just lies, it finds strength, it finds finds its, its ability to do evil through hiding it. truth is is hidden. Lies are exalted. Same thing with righteousness and justice. How will it prevail in a culture of lies? And so it seems that the faithful have disappeared because lies have covered the land like waters cover the seabed. That's what's happening in this psalm. And so our outline that we're going to take is we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and we're going to see lamenting a culture of lies. That's what David is doing as he writes this psalm. He's lamenting sorrowing over a culture of lies in verses 1 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 6, we will listen to the certainty of God's words. In a culture of lies, we want to listen to the certainty of God's words, and that's what we have in verses 5 through 6. Verses 7 through 8, living in confident hope. And so this really puts together the reality of living in a culture of lies with the fact that God has spoken true and good promises. And then what does that look like in everyday life? How do we live this out? And so we see that in verses 7 and 8. Well, let's talk about lamenting a culture of lies. Verses 1 through 4. I'll read that again for us. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So verse 1 sets the scene. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. David is the author, and he is surrounded by ungodly, untrustworthy people. Not by trustworthy people, but by liars. So remember, David is king of Israel, or at least he's slated to be king. We actually don't know when he wrote this psalm. We don't know if it's when Saul is pursuing and persecuting him. That'd be one time where he's encountering a bunch of liars. Saul says all sorts of lies about him to try to get the people to not want to follow him. It could be later on when he is king, and Absalom, his son overthrows, tries to overthrow David through his smooth speech. He wins over the hearts of the people and basically says, look, David's not giving you justice. I'll give you justice. Come to me. I'll I'll be a better king than my father. And then David has to run out of town to avoid getting killed by his son Absalom. So we don't know exactly when it is, but the point is he, there are, there's much uh, lying going on in the culture around him. And, uh, and so what does he do? Uh, these people are using their words as weapons. They're, they're using their words not to advance truth, but to advance lies. What does he do? Well, he goes to God and he prays, save and judge. Those are the two things he asked God to do. You see that? Look at verse one. Save, O Lord. Save, rescue, right? Rescue your people. Rescue the people who belong to you. And then also judge. Look at verse three. He wants the Lord to bring justice. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Bring judgment. That's what the prayer is. So this is, like we said, a lament. He's expressing sorrow. And it's a godly lament. I want to just make this clear here too. Um, There's a difference between complaining in a sinful way and lamenting in a godly way. And we see that here. 
A godly lament is about something that is wrong according to who? According to God. That, that's where it starts. Uh, and it's taking God, it is uh, taking it to who? To whom? To God. That, that's what, so those two characteristics are pretty important if you're going to lament. It's about something that God says is wrong. It's not just, I feel offended. That you might be offended because something wrong happened. That might be true. But it's not really about you. Right? And then, and then number two is this idea that it is, um, I'm taking it to God. I'm not just using it as a complaint. And so an ungodly, sinful complaining is when we take um, difficulty and we use it to doubt God. Because why? Because we're judging God based on the difficulty according to our standard. You see how it just flips everything on its head? Um, I mean, none of you can probably relate to complaining that way, right? None of you have experienced that. I have experienced that, right? That, that, is, that is where our heart is prone to go. We want to learn with the psalmist. I think it's one of the reasons God gives us these laments is so we can learn how to lament in a way that glorifies God. Because that, that's good for our soul, and it's glorifying to God. And that's what we need. Well, he says the godly and faithful are gone. The word godly here is the Hebrew word chasid, and it is complementary word to chesed. So we, we've talked about chesed before, which is the idea of steadfast love of the Lord. So the, the idea of the person, um, so, so the, the God's steadfast love, that's how it gets usually translated. If you're reading through Psalms and you see steadfast love or anywhere in the Old Testament, usually it's, it's that chesed word. And, and when you see that, it's, it, one English word is hard to capture what that means. And so they, they, they translate it as steadfast love or loyal love or covenant love, things like that. But the idea is it's God's faithful, never giving up, always keeping his promise to love his people love. It's this tenacious clinging, always following his people love. Uh, never letting them get attacked by the wolves, right? In, in, in a way that will destroy them. That He's going to hold on to them. So he has this type of love. And then Hasid, the godly person here, this complimentary word, these are the people who have what? They have received the steadfast love of, the, of God. And so they then do what? They love God, right? He is faithful in his covenant. And so because of that faithfulness, they then are able to be faithful to God's covenant. They are the people loved by God. And so they love him. Think about how Jesus, uh, how the, uh, John talks about, why do we love him? Because he first loved us. It's kind of a similar idea. It's the people who have been loved by God and therefore love God back. That's what we're talking about here with the godly one. So they're loyal to God. And then we see that with the word faithful. That word faithful is a similar idea, but it does focus in on their trustworthiness, their faithfulness. You can count on them to do what's right because they follow the Lord. They love the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's that idea, John 14, 21. So it sounds like the people you want to be around, the godly, the faithful. But in David's case, and oftentimes in our own experience, that's not the people around us. And so we see that David is feeling quite alone. And, and, um, and we don't know what's going on. Perhaps they have been, the, the godly have been suppressed. I mean, think about how this has happened in cultures around the world. Jailed for speaking the truth. Killed for speaking the truth. Or perhaps they're suppressed by mobs online here in our context. Uh, perhaps they're hiding. The, the, when the wicked take power, often the righteous go into hiding. You see that in, in Proverbs. Uh, you see that in the time of Elijah as well. Um, perhaps they appeared to be godly, but they weren't. They, they said all the right things, and then when, when persecution came, they showed their true colors. That could be true as well. Point is, David is feeling alone, and the question is, have you ever felt that way? Have you felt that way at work? Have you felt that way in your school? Have you felt that way in a difficult home environment? Um, 
being alone the way David is, feeling like the people around me are just speaking lies. They are not the godly. They do not fear God. You love and want to please God, but those around you don't share that and you feel alone. So I would encourage you, take heart. Even King David, the one who got anointed to be king over his people, who was in fact to be even larger than life because he was to be a picture of Jesus who would come to be the king of God's people forever. So David is, is, and then Jesus kind of lives out the same experience, doesn't he? Surrounded by liars. Think about his trial. But, but the point is you're in good company. David has experienced this. And so we, with David, want to join our voices in lament and in trust in God. Um, he feels alone, so, but take heart, David, David is with you. But you know what? Elijah was in a similar situation. Remember Elijah, and he said, after this, everyone's worshiping the God of the day, and he, he, does, he has this big conflict with um, these, all these false prophets, and then he runs out into the wilderness to flee because now they want to kill him even more than they wanted to kill him before. And he says to God, look, uh, I alone am left. And what does God say? That's not true. I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to this false God. And so we have to remember that too. And, and David, by the way, he starts out feeling alone and it's right to express that feeling. I'm not saying that's wrong. Express that feeling. But we also have to recognize we actually are not alone. And by the end of it, you see in verse eight, David does talk, or verse seven, David does talk about guard us from this generation. So even, even prayer kind of reminds us, it, it resets things in our mind more accurately. So we should, we should take heart. <clears throat> but David does say that everyone utters lies around him. He feels isolated, and this is a persuasive or pervasive problem. Uh, the, the, so everyone utters lies. It really, in other words, it really is a pervasive problem. Even though he feels uh, alone and he's not fully alone, he really, it, it is, it's pervasive. It's a big problem. Uh, it's kind of like in your, in your yard, it's not like just, you just have like one little weed that sprung up. Right? I just got this one, I have a weed problem. I got one that I just need to pluck up and problem solve. It's more like you have a fence and vines have just, invasive vines have just grown up over the top of the fence. They're on the other side of the fence and they are yanking the fence down. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. Everyone utters lies. That's David's experience. And there are four different ways he, he talks about the lies in this evil culture where they're using their tongues as weapons. I'm going to read verses two through four, and I want you to see if you can pick up on these four different types of lying tongues that are going on. Verse two, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So the first is the broadest category, and it's referred to probably, at least in the ESV translation, as lies. It's more than that. It just really deals with the idea of empty words. These are empty words. This is one version of lies that we encounter. And, uh, and we, can, we can experience these empty words in our own life, in our own world. Um, even within church buildings, we can experience this, right? Because why? Think, think about this, these empty words. In John, if you say you love God, what's the rest of that? but you don't love your brother. You are a liar and the truth is not in you. Now, we don't love people perfectly. I get that, right? Jesus, Jesus loved perfectly for us, so take heart. But the point is, if I have no love for other Christians, for other people that, that have God as their father, how can I, I can say all day long that I love God, but it's empty. How can you say you love God who you have not seen if you can't love your brother who you do see? So we can have empty words even in, in, inside of a church building, even, even maybe within the visible church, right? 
We certainly have it in the culture all around us. Uh, I'm going to go through some things here just real quick. Uh, philosophies of the day, such as uh, just this methodological naturalism, this idea that natural things explain everything in the universe. That's empty. And they know it's empty. They don't look at something with design complexities to it and say, well, I guess it just randomly happened. And this airplane just kind of randomly happened. The wind blew it long enough and put all the pieces together. This is emptiness, and they know it, but they say it. False advertising, so going maybe a little bit less serious, but still frustrating, right? This will fix all your problems. And they could be advertising a hamburger or some sort of, you know, heart defibrillator. It doesn't really matter. Um, social media, certainly full of it, right? Look how great we are or look how terrible we are, but really it could just be emptiness. Social media can be used well, it can be used great to, you know, keep in touch with people. But it can also be used as empty lies. Uh, misrepresentations by the media. Um, how many times have you read an article? You read the headline, I'm sorry, you read the he headline. And if you ever, and then you go read the, head, the rest of the story and you realize that the headline actually was like the opposite. It was like, we're going to get into doublespeak in a minute. It was kind of like this doublespeak thing going on. Uh, even uh, August 8th, or uh, sorry, August 1st. We're not to August 8th yet, are we? An abortion ban, this is a, a title in Washington Post. An abortion ban made them teen parents. Somebody needs to go back to biology class. <laughs> right? An abortion ban makes no one a parent. We know what makes someone a parent. Now, an abortion ban may, may stop them from deciding to parent in a particular way. That is by ending the life of their child. But it does not make anybody a parent. Um, we're told we must use pronouns in certain, cer certain circumstances, indicating that a person is female when in fact they are male or vice versa. Um, listen, a person might be confused and need help. The call here is not to be just mean and, uh, and you know, someone who's really struggling. We show compassion. Yes, yeah, show compassion. It's not compassionate to speak lies. Right? And, it's, and really, it's an empty phrase. You're saying you're this, but we all know that's empty. That's not actually true. So we must not embrace empty words. Flattering lips is the second. Literally, lips of smoothness. Lips of smoothness. So you get the idea of what, what is flattery. Flattery is you use these words, they just sound so smooth. They go down, they go down my ears and, and into my heart in such a smooth way. I feel so good when I hear you talk about how wonderful I am. Right? But it's flattery. And, and what does flattery use? It's used to manipulate, isn't it? That's why these words are so dangerous. Flattery is used to manipulate. Either Here's a couple different ways. One is, um, I want somebody to do what I want. Just direct manipulation, right? Dad, you're so wonderful. You're so great. Can I have $10, right? Um, to affect other people's opinion of us. We may want to manipulate them into liking us more. If I say that they're, what they did was really great, then they'll turn around and say what I did was really great. Um, to cover over evil. We can flatter and use it to cover over evil. So think about it this way. Um, in terms of we give awards for all sorts of evil things in our culture. But what does an award signify but greatness? We're, doing, we're seeing this with trans athletes now. right? You are the best female athlete. You are woman of the year. When in fact it's a man. Right? I mean, this is flattery is what this is. It's not true. And it's designed to get some sort of response from these people and from the people around us that is empty. And we do it too, don't we? We use flattery. It's easy to fall into flattery out of self-preservation or out of our own pride or out of even just fearing what the people around us think. Now, to be clear, some of you are more direct in what you say and the way you think. 
the, the opposite of flattery is not necessarily just say whatever pops into your mind. Proverbs says that is foolish and that's not love. Rash words are like a sword thrust. So don't think that you are now like, well, I'm anti-flattery, so I'm just going to go around telling it like it is. Okay, we do need to tell like it. I mean, I get that. But when it comes to your personal relationships, this isn't like, you know, your spouse asks you something about how does dinner taste or what do you think about this? And then you just start stabbing, you're going to have problems. Proverbs says you're a fool, right? So this is not licensed to say whatever you want, but it is a call to realize flattery is deadly. It is deadly, it is wrong, and it needs to be, um, we, and we live in a culture full of flattery. Third is double speech, speech from a, a double heart. Literally, the, it's heart of heart and heart. It is, you have this heart and you have this heart. We could all say you have this mind and you have this mind. Think about James talks about a double-minded man, same idea. And so um, several ideas come out of this hypocritical speech, right? The person saying, don't steal, while they're in the middle of embezzling. Um, the politician saying, look, we should throw every corrupt politician into jail while they're corrupt. This is hypocritical. It is doublespeak. It is from double heart. We don't really mean what we're saying. We say it, but we don't really mean it. Um, commitment, uh, double, this double heart comes out when we give a commitment that we really don't mean. Um, we, we could say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but then we really don't mean that deep down. What we meant was, as long as you make my life easy and happy and profitable financially, I will follow you. But when that ends, I'm not following you. Same thing with wedding vows, right? Till death do us part, except until I get ready to move on. These are sad things that characterize our culture left and right, and may they not characterize the people of God. That's hopefully one thing you're realizing. We ought to lament these things. We ought not look like these things. But we also have to realize the world around us is a culture of lies, and we don't just overlook that just because, well, we have our own issues. Well, no, we have our own issues. We get the log out of our own eye, but that doesn't mean we don't recognize what's going on around us. We don't call it what it is in a loving but yet truthful way. Uh, abortion is another area of double speak. Pro-choice. Well, is, are, is the issue really just choices? Is that really what we're, we're just, we just don't want people to be able to make choices in life. That's not what we're talking about. This is double speak. We're not actually against choices being made. Uh, women's health care. Are we really against women having health care? No, but we're against them being able to end the life of someone else, right? Again, biology tells us, so this is doublespeak, and we know this. We know this. It's why it's doublespeak. Because biology tells us the baby inside, separate DNA. This is, a, this is a new person at its earliest developmental stage. So we're not, it's not, this is not an issue of are we against women's health care. This is, what, what about the baby's health care? And yes, that doesn't mean we ignore the women's health care either. Right? We, we can have a whole conversation about all this, but I'm just trying to show you examples in our culture that are just, they are just, mm, they are right in your face. Because we need to, and why? Because so we can lament them. We can be truly sorrowful for these things being in our culture. Same thing with reproductive rights. Uh, again, reproduction has already occurred. This is double speak. Gender affirming care, when what is really meant is denying a person's gender and intervening to do to make something else appear to be true that's not true. This is doublespeak because it's not actually gender. Gender affirming would be what? If we really meant that, it would mean this is who God has made you to be. And this is good that he has made you a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. And we want to affirm that reality. And we understand that that may be hard for you to, to feel right now. I understand that, right? We're not, this is, people struggle with confusion and it's okay. But gender affirming is to affirm this as this is what God's made you is good. This is good. We want to help you be thankful to God for this rather than always be 
looking at yourself, wishing you were something else. Equality. Equality is not a bad word, but in modern parlance, it has become doublespeak, hasn't it? It's like George Orwell's uh, novel, Animal Farm. The communist animals take over the farm. You remember that? And the pigs continue to remind everyone, every animal is equal, but some are more equal than others. That's doublespeak, isn't it? You don't really mean equal in that phrase, at least not the way we would generally think about that in society. Right? And so we, we find this in our culture as well. Double-hearted speech is very dangerous, especially for the person who engages in it, because what has happened is the heart is, is two minds to it. Because you know something to be true, but in your mind you, you, believe, you embrace something else to be true, and you try to hold on to both of those. What does that mean? There is no integrity. Inte- integrity is the idea of integralness, oneness. That you, you render that apart inside your very soul, and it is damaging to that person's soul. And so it's loving to try to free them from that to communicate truth. This is how outrageous lies take hold, is through double-mindedness. The final thing here is boasting, verses three and four. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Listen, if flattering is wrongly promoting others for my personal gain, this is directly promoting myself. That's what boasting is. It's just a more direct way to get to promoting myself. Um, and then how does this happen? Well, with our tongues, we will prevail. In other words, we're going to win with our words. We have smoother words than you. We sound better than you. We're going to win with our words. You can't stop us. Propaganda, things like that. Uh, think of Absalom again. He stole the hearts of the people with his words. Smooth sounding words. Flattering. Um, who is master over us? No one can stop us. Um, and this, in the context, you have to remember, uh, Psalm 2 is really pretty important for the context here. God says, I'm going to set my king over all the earth. Right? I've set my king in Zion is where he starts out here. But then look at how they, the, the kings of the earth respond this way in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what they're saying is, look, no one is going to be Lord over us. We're the boss. I'm king. We're not going to submit to any other Lord. So this is, the, this is the pinnacle of boasting. There is no fear of God. There is no one we will have to give an account to. Listen, we've progressed past God. We don't need God anymore. So there is no God. That's what they will say. And we have to be careful because we can practically embrace thoughts like that too. Right? Whenever, even as Christians, we read something in the Bible, we don't like what it says, and then we think, ah, has God really said that? What are we questioning? We're questioning his authority. We're questioning if he's Lord or if we're Lord. So we need to repent of that when we find that in our own hearts. But this really is the root issue of a lying culture. A lying culture exists because people want to cast off whom? God. That is why you have a lying culture. If you're in a culture that fears God, then God is Lord and he sees our hearts. So all this double-mindedness, all this flattery, all these empty words, we recognize he would see right through all that. But as long as we live in a culture that wants to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, what's going to happen? It's going to be a lying culture to some extent. But the Lord offers his promises. He gives his promises here. Um, At the end of that, they have that kind of what they think is a rhetorical question. 
right? Our lips are with us. In other words, they, they are our weapons. And who is master over us? They kind of think that's, that's the be all end all. Well, the answer is no one. But it's ironic that in the next verse, who speaks? God answers the question, right? There's a, and so he's answered it and he will answer it in power one day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Look at verses five and six, listening to the certainty of God's word, listening to the certainty of God's word. Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The word of the Lord, so I think this is David now meditating on what the fact that God has spoken. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So in verse five, God speaks directly about what he's going to do. The, the poor and needy are the powerless individuals um, who cannot stand, uh, humanly speaking, against the oppressors. And in this case, really, it's the godly ones. That's who he's talking about. Uh, he's talking about the godly ones here specifically. And, uh, and the words the Lord gives are what? He says, I'm going to arise and deliver them. I will bring them into safety. Notice in verse one, God prayed, uh, uh, David prayed for what in verse one? Save, right? And then now we see God says, I will deliver him into safety. I will deliver my people into safety. So God is answering that prayer. As Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor said, nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. He bestirs himself, wakes up his manhood, overthrows the enemy, and sets his beloved in safety. And so that's what God does. God does that. It says, uh, it says God's going to do it for the, the safety for which he longs. That's the idea of he sighs for it. He's moaning for it. How comforting to know that God our Father hears even our sighs, our groanings. He hears his people. He's not deaf to what his people experience. He hears and he says he will arise. Now, let's be clear. This is not immediate vindication every single time. Like in other words, right now, we see the fullness of deliverance. But they truly are delivered into a place of safety. And that happens even now. Um, and in David's situation, we'll see later on in verse eight, the wicked are still prowling by the end of the psalm. So, so that's one reason I'm saying this doesn't necessarily mean immediate removal from all the difficulty you're facing when we say that God will arise. He will do that one day. But even now, there's a real sense in which he delivers his people. He gives safety to them. Think of Stephen in the book of Acts. He speaks what? Truth to his fellow Jews. And what do they do? First, they cover their ears because they're in a culture of lies and they don't want to hear the true gospel. Then what do they do? They take their hands away from their ears long enough to pick up stones, to stone him. And while he's dying, what are we told? He looks up heavenward and he sees who? Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I will arise, God says. I will hear his moan. I will deliver my people into safety. Even death cannot remove God's people from his safe clasp. They will safely enter into God's place through death even. So God's word here is wonderful. And what's wonderful about it is verse six, because we see that it's pure. These are pure words. Uh, the pure words of the Lord, they are like ref, uh, silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So this poetic analogy here is he gives you this picture of, of what they do in refining silver. They have this furnace and they heat it up. And, and it's, it's not like, it's not that God's words are just silver, which would be a very precious metal. 
worth much, right? It, it's, it's not just that it's silver ore that you pull out of the earth with all of its impurities in it. Think about how, I mean, words in general are a gift. Even our words that are kind of like that silver ore and mixed with all sorts of stuff, that's a gift from God. But God's words are even better than that because it's pure silver. He takes this and he melts it down seven times to boil away all the impurities. And he says, that's what God's word is like. It's like what you get at the end of that process. If you were to take silver, you, you picture what it looks like. You do it seven times, you get the most pure silver. It is, he says, that's what God's word is like. It's like that pure silver at that end of that process. So, so think of the weightiness that adds to what God just said. God just gives this promise. And David hearing that says, your words are like silver to me. In other words, they are valuable because they are pure. They are valuable because they are not like the liars around me. They are valuable because they are not empty boasts and empty threats. They say, who's Lord over us? God says, I'm Lord. They're not Lord, but he is. Your word is like silver to me, is what, God's, is what David says. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. His promises are more valuable than silver because they are pure promises. They are not false. They are not empty. They are not double-minded. How comforting is that? God is not double-minded when he promises to deliver his people. He's not double-minded when he delivers us from our sin. He's not double-minded in saying he's going to deliver us from our enemies. So where do you find words of, of certainty and hope? Perhaps you're not a Christian and you don't like the fact that the Bible says certain things about you like the fact that you're a sinner. You might not like that. But where are you going to go to find truth if not to God's word? Because it is true that you're a sinner. Um, it's, listen, the rebuke of God is better than the praise, empty praise of man. All of your friends may tell you you're the most wonderful person in the world. Children, your parents may tell you you are the one, most wonderful person in the world. And in one sense, they mean that because they love you more than their own lives. But in another sense, we would recognize you're sinful. So, so yeah, if you, if you want flattery, I guess you can go the way of flattery. You can keep listening to the flattery, but its end is death. Where will you find truth if you reject the only source of truth? I'm talking about ultimate issues, truth, God's word, what it says. And he says he's going to bring a day of judgment, salvation, but yes, also judgment. And so the call to you is to, don't, don't be like those who stop up their ears to the truth, but listen to it. It is life-giving, life-changing words from God, purer than the purest silver. Aren't you so sick of the lies around you and the lies you find coming from your own mouth and the double-mindedness you see in your own heart? God's words are true. God's words will deliver us if we trust in the Savior he sent, Jesus. So may his steadfast love be poured out on you that you might be one of his godly people. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to save you. Well, back to our psalm, we've seen lamenting the culture of lies. We've seen listening to the certainty of God's words. Now we're going to see how the godly live in light of those realities. So living in confident hope, verses 7 and 8. So this, this kind of brings the first section. Yes, this is where we live. We live in this culture of lies. And the second section, God gives his promise and his promise is pure. It brings those two things in together. And what do we end up having? We have hope. Because hope is actually going to require both those things to be true. That things are not what we, what we would want them to be right now and that there is genuine something worth trusting in. Those two things have to come together. So let me, let me read this. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children 
of man. So David is reflecting on God's promise and the present situation. He brings these two together and he has confident hope. Verse seven, trust in the Lord's words. That's the first piece of hope. So here's what I'm saying. This is not what we're doing right now. This is not just like a nice academic exercise about like, I wonder how, you know, the, I wonder what the ancient mind thought. I wonder what their culture was like. Oh, they had a culture of lies. That's so fascinating. That's not what this is about. This is, this is about personal trust in the Lord. God's people trusting in the Lord. That's true for David and it's true for us. And so we need to trust the Lord. And in verse seven, he basically is repeating a lot, kind of the idea that God gave, but he's saying, Basically, I trust this. I believe what you said. You are going to deliver me. I believe your words. You, O Lord, will keep them. Them likely refers to words here, so probably the words that were just mentioned. So what's he saying? Your words, your promises, you're going to keep them. I believe it. You gave that promise. I believe you're going to keep your words. And then us refers, I think, to the godly ones. You will guard us from this generation forever. Your translation might say God, God, uh, guard him, which I still think would refer to the godly person back up in verse one. Either way, I think the point is the godly people will be preserved. So, so your words are true and uh, you're gonna preserve your people and I believe that. I'm trusting that reality is what he's saying. You will guard us from this generation forever, from this lying generation. So that's the first component. But the second component is that this trust is happening in what setting? Look at verse eight. Is have things changed on the ground? This is, there's a war raging. The wicked seem to be prevailing. Has, has the ground assessment changed? According to verse 8. No. The wicked are strutting around. That's what that word means. They are strutting back and forth. They prowl. They strut. They hold their heads high. They puff out their chest and they walk around with all sorts of pride. So, so if we're going to have hope, we have to realize, okay, when you hope for something, do you have what you're hoping for? No, you don't have it. But you have a confident expectation that it's going to come. So that's what I'm saying. Hope requires trust in the Lord. Where? where? In the midst of this lying generation. And that's what you see at the end of this psalm. You see lament should lead us to this type of hope. Not denial of reality, not just hide out until everything seems to get better, but trusting God in the middle of it. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the wicked, or sorry, among the children of man. So they're prowling, they're strutting around. Vileness is being celebrated. Um, We see that even in our own culture, continued celebration of evil, Um, which again, this is why the lying culture is there. It's because they don't want God. They want to suppress the truth so they can keep celebrating vileness. We prefer to have no hardship, but that's not the way it is right now. We have hardship. So God's people live in a confident hope. We're not despairing. We're not naive. We're not full of fear. We are hopeful. That's how we are to live as God's people. Spurgeon said we must join the psalmist in singing this, and he called it, this is what he said. He said, singing the mingled melody of lowly mourning and lofty confidence. That's what lamenting is. It's, it's that melody that's combined with the lowly mourning sounds, uh, like sadness mourning, and then the lofty confidence in God. That's what it is to lament. So as we conclude, what might it look like to sing this song of hopeful lament? We do find ourselves in a similar 
situation. I would say that we live in a culture of lies. And um, this is true on all sorts of political sides of the spectrum. This is true in all sorts of media sides of the spectrum. And we find even at times it's true in our own hearts. But here, really, what we're talking about is God's faithful people. They're not faithful because they're perfect, but they're faithful because, they, they, God, I want you to reign. And so in this, we want that, but then we look around and we see vileness all around us. We see lies all around us. I think we're in the same place. So what should we do? First, we mourn lies. We don't join lies. In the emperor's new clothes story, uh, the king is paraded through the streets in his wonderful clothes, or we might just say undergarments because that's what he's wearing. And everyone in the crowd is proclaiming how wonderful the clothes look. And then until, do you remember what happens? One little boy calls it like he sees it, right? And he says, he doesn't have any clothes on. And the boy's father says something to the effect of, listen to this little guy. He's just such an innocent little guy, isn't he? Tries to kind of, it's almost like he's like embarrassed about what his son just said. The emperor is suspicious that the boy is right. He gets this kind of sneaking feeling that maybe this is true. But you know what he does? He stands taller. He holds his head up higher, pushes out his chest, and continues marching. Isn't that what happens in a culture of lies? We must not live by lies. We must not be like the world around us with these empty, flattering, double-minded words. We must not join the lies. We will be tempted to because of self-protection, because of our own pride. Who doesn't want to be on the winning side, right? Because of fear. But we must shine like Christ, like the lights that he has made us. We must be known of speak, for speaking the truth in love. That's what we need to be known as. The world will continue. They, they will bear down in their lies. They, they will puff up their chest and keep walking. But we must not live by lies. We must live by God's truth. And we have to do that humbly, by the way, because I didn't write the truth. You didn't write the truth. So don't boast about it, but speak it clearly. Because that's not humble either. Well, God said it, but I'm not going to say it. That's not humble. Now, there are times in wisdom to not say everything that is true all in the one moment. I'm not saying here that you have to go out and every single time you see something that is a lie, you've got to just shout it every single time. I mean, think about people living in, in certain countries where they, they would just get arrested and shot for doing that. That doesn't mean they're not Christians. But are there ways that you don't go along with the lies? You're not embracing them in your heart. Perhaps it's as simple as not standing to salute the, the vileness that's being saluted in the moment. That may be the way you resist the lies. But the point is, we don't walk in lies. We don't affirm them. And we speak the truth as often as we are able to. A quick word to teenagers, your friends and celebrities, it doesn't matter how many of them embrace lies. They're not the standard. God's word is. And you need to hold true to what God says. I know it, it, it's hard because your friends, they seem so sure of themselves. But I guarantee you on judgment day, they will not be so sure of those lies. So speak the truth to your friends. Share the gospel with them and cling to the truth. Second, we must cling to the words of God as more precious than any other words we could have. How refreshing is God's truth? It, in a culture of lies, it's like we're surrounded by, the lies are like a pack of wolves surrounding us. In a setting like that, how much more comforting is it to have the shepherd with his rod, his word of truth? Right? And I think we all affirm that. Well, let's prove that. If we believe that, what are we doing with God's word? Let's prove it. Let's go to God's word. Let's cling to his truth. Let's love his precious words. I understand you get tired, you get weary, right? You get cold-hearted, but don't be content to stay there. God, I need to love your words. Give me a love for your words. Help me value them as more than any wealth I could have. 
Third is hope in God. His promises are true. Even when it seems like liars are prevailing at the moment, his word is still true. So we must believe it. We must cling to his truth in hope. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your words, and um, we recognize that we need your words. We humbly um, rejoice that you have given us truth, God. We would not have such revealed truth about who you are, about who we are, about why we're here, about the way that things can be made right, about your son Jesus. We would not have any of this if you had not spoken to us, if you had not given us revelation. So we humbly receive it. Help us to live humbly under your words and proclaim your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.